0: Can you open up to Exodus chapter five? We're going to continue our exposition through this book. Now I know we've been doing a chapter a week. I had set to do a chapter and a half this week, and uh, for for the, I think the first time probably in my pastoral uh, life, I admitted I'd taken I'd bitten off too much to chew. So we're just going to do eighteen verses today, chapter five, verse one through to verse eighteen. And this <laughs> this is the scene of Moses entering back into Egypt after his 40-year separation from what had become his homeland. Uh, separation from what had become his people, the Egyptians, by, by his raising up, living in their household, but, but also ethnically. And, and he had that identity with the Jews, but he hadn't seen them either. He hadn't seen a, a Jew for the last 40 years. And here we have uh, now come down from the mountain of God, the Mount Sinai, where God met Moses, appeared to him in the burning bush, and spoke to him and commissioned him to go and to speak to the people and to Pharaoh and command that he let God's people go. With some threatening miracles and some, some fighting words, Moses was sent back. We're going to see that as we read now. So please look with me at Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the, the Lord Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know this, Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword." But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. We'll let heavier work be put upon them and their men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. "'Go and get it for yourselves, wherever you can find it, "'but your work will not be reduced in the least.' "'So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt "'to gather stubble for straw. "'The taskmasters were urgent, saying, "'Complete your work, your daily task, each day, "'as when there was straw.' "'And the foremen of the people of Israel, "'whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, "'were beaten and were asked, "'Why have you not done all the task of making bricks "'today and yesterday as in the past?' And then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your people. Uh, No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. This is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. What an amazing, horrible, and truly terrifying scene to imagine. We're going to first look at the incompleteness of Pharaoh's Uh, uh, hearing of of what Moses was requesting of him. What what Moses went into Pharaoh's uh, uh, presence and said and what he was actually partaking and doing in that confronting scene was incomplete. It was not full obedience to what God had told him to do. So look at verse... uh, 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 Well, actually, I'm just going to read from back in chapter 3. Back in chapter 3 in verse 18, here's what he was told to say to Pharaoh. He was told, Thus says the Lord... The God of Israel, you and the elders, sorry, this is what God of Israel said to Moses. You and the elders of Israel, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So he's been given here, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 5, the prophetic formula This is like the stamp of approval from God himself that the prophets will then use over and over again in the Old Testament is thus says the Lord. And what they're doing then is saying, this is not coming from me, this is not on my authority, these are the very words of the God who is creator, who will be redeemer, and who is judge. That's what that prophetic formula symbolizes. He was given that, and then what he did go in and say in verse 1 is, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So, so this is good. He's, he's saying uh, in this portion at least what he was told to say. And, and in case uh, we don't remember back into the previous sermons, when we hear this, why is God telling him and then why is he asking for a three day trip into the wilderness to worship and sacrifice. Why is it being phrased that way? Well, well, the best guess is that there is in fact historical records and precedent that the, the slaves of the Egyptian pharaohs would be given leave from time to time to be able to apply for kind of a, an annual leave type kind of thing. They would come to the pharaoh and say, may we please, though we're your slaves, go into the wilderness or go to our motherland, offer some sacrifices, we will come back. That was, that was actually done from time to time in Egypt, and so what God has told Moses to go and ask for is, is just go and ask for the status quo. Just go and ask for the usual thing that you were told that 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 that, that, nor- that other slaves are allowed to do, and see what He says. It was ultimately a test framed in this way. So they go and they ask that. However, if you're paying attention to what was told in chapter three and what happens in verse one of chapter five, you'll notice that the elders of Israel are in fact missing. Moses was told to go into the presence of Pharaoh with all of the heads of the houses and the tribal patriarchs of Israel. There there would have been quite a a crowd had they all followed Moses in, the heads of the households, the heads of the the families, the heads of the tribes. There would have been a, a great deal of Hebrew slaves in with Moses and Aaron that day had he obeyed. And yet he goes in and he does not in fact have them with him. God's words are never idle god's words are never just slipping off his tongue because he didn't think about all of the things he was going to say and he didn't pay to get an editor to sort of uh to sort of make sure that his words were neat and tidy he had commanded a very specific way of going about this and and moses for a reason we're not told was not able to embolden the israelites enough to come with him. Maybe the fault was theirs. Maybe they refused to come. They believed God was with them, but they didn't have quite the guts to go and march into Pharaoh's palace. Or maybe it was in fact Moses' fault that he did not have the the, the line by line, I guess the, the exegetical obedience that he should have had. He summarized what God had said. He picked the parts he thought were effective and he went in himself incompletely obeying. But this was going to be a part of the the lesson that he's been learning all of his life, that God's redemption comes God's way. God's redemption comes God's way, and he was sent to be God's prophet, not God's editor. We've already seen 40 years ago when he was back in Egypt and he killed a guy and then he tried to liberate the, 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 the Hebrews by bringing some kind of a, a vigilante justice, we've already seen that God was not going to just, just jump on Moses' side and whatever Moses thinks best, that's what God's willing to do. That doesn't work. God refuses to be Moses' sidekick. And here again we see that Moses is forgetting this and he's gone about it in a way that was incomplete. Furthermore, in verse three, he said here, "Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with sword and with pestilence." Now, that's a really, really good way to try and convince Pharaoh. Like, you're going to lose all of your slaves because God's going to kill us if he, if you don't let us go. So it's better for you in the long run if you let us go, Pharaoh. That's a good argument, but that's not what God told him to say. Do you remember what God told him to say in chapter 4? It wasn't say that there's a threat upon the Israelites. His line was given to him, go in and say to Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go. The Israelites, my children, my, my firstborn son to Yahweh. God says, let my firstborn son go or he will kill yours. That was the line. And he didn't threaten Pharaoh like he was supposed to. He didn't drop that, that king hit of a line with him, with all the, the Israelite slave elders behind him. Rather, he said this line. He says <coughs> uh, what was incomplete rather than the full words given to him by God. We aren't told why. We don't know uh, exactly, precisely how, how God viewed this or, or what consequences come because of this incomplete obedience. But we know that God is merciful And slow to anger and steadfast in his love and in his his faithfulness, as Psalm 103 tells us. So he does not burn with anger against his spokesperson, Moses, here. Rather, what we see happen next is Pharaoh's hard-hearted refusal to listen. But we were already told that this was going to happen. It's sort of uh, tricky at this point to think, would Pharaoh... Have, have, have stood up and enforced all of these terrible edicts upon the slaves to make bricks without straw. Would he have done all of this if Moses had just fully obeyed God, done what he was supposed to do, and, and, and God, you know, or was God punishing Moses by making life harder? We don't fully know because, because if your answer is, well, obviously Pharaoh didn't listen because Mero, Mo, Pharaoh disobeyed, we would say, well, that's not quite, quite a, a true either because actually we were told from the get go. That Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. He's not going to believe. But, but maybe they could have avoided this little chapter 5 and 6 where they get afflicted and abused so much worse. We don't know. What we know is that Pharaoh was inc- Moses was incomplete in his request. And now we get an, uh, an insight into Pharaoh's ignorance of Yahweh. Pharaoh's ignorance of Yahweh. He's not a believer in this God. He's, he's an atheist as far as this Yahweh God goes. And yet we're going to see that his ignorance is, in fact, dishonest. Look at verse 2. Pharaoh said back to Moses and to Aaron, Who is the Lord? Remember, whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the, that's the English sort of a version of, of the Hebrew name for God, which is I am, or Yahweh. So who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go. I don't know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Moses is coming into the presence of a polytheist here. Pharaoh has plenty of gods, the Egyptians had plenty of gods, and they're aware that their gods are not the gods over all the earth. They're aware that there are other gods. There are the Sumerian gods. There are the the Midianite gods. There are are the Ethiopian gods. There are all sorts of other gods out there, but they don't have uh, authority. They don't have jurisdiction inside the land of the Egyptian gods. So you can see that, that Pharaoh is not saying here, I don't believe in him, he doesn't exist. His existence is neither here nor there for Pharaoh. The fact is that I don't know him. This is not his place. This is not his kingdom. This is not where he has authority or jurisdiction. That's what Pharaoh is saying back to Moses. I don't know this God. He's never revealed himself to us. We don't have a temple for him. We don't have an idol for him. He he can't request something of me. So no, little Israelite God can go back to Canaan, go back to the grave of Abraham and he can be worshipped over there. That's the mindset of Pharaoh. He did not know Yahweh because Yahweh had not revealed himself to him. Pharaoh did not know Yahweh because Yahweh had not revealed himself to him, at least not by the way of the burning bush with clarity and with explanation of his name. But we have to put our theological hats on for a second and say, is there any way in which Pharaoh did know Yahweh? Had Yahweh revealed himself to Pharaoh outside of, a, of, a, of an explicit, visible, prophetic vision? Has Yahweh ever revealed himself to Pharaoh? And the answer is yes. Not because Pharaoh is a prophet. Not because Pharaoh is a closet Hebrew. Not because Pharaoh is a, a, a diviner who has accessed the divine realm. But simply because Pharaoh is a human being made in the image of God and therefore knows the God on some level whose image he carries. That is what is so clear to us. In, in made explicit in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God has said that his eternal power and his divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that people are without excuse. Do you realize that this is not just Calvinistic, reformed, sort of Protestant, evangelical, post-cross theology? This is true all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That God has made himself known through creation clearly so that nobody is ever able to say with full honesty, I don't know Yahweh. I have, I have no recollection, no understanding, no, no no comprehension of a God who is above all and beyond all. I don't have that theology. No, that's not honest. Romans 1 verse 20 tells us the what. What is revealed? What did Pharaoh have revealed to him? And the answer is Yahweh himself. Not, not just the, the concept of a divine being in general. If that was the case, then Pharaoh is not guilty for worshipping idols because he's ticking that box. I believe in a God. I'm a general theist, therefore I worship things. Ticking the box. He's, He's actually obeying there. That's not the case. What is being revealed to Pharaoh and to every creature ever is the existence of Yahweh, his divine nature, his eternal power. It's him that is being made known in a covenantal relationship. And so he should have known. When was it being made known? Ever since creation, Romans 1 verse 20 tells us. Since the creation of the world. And how is it being made known? Well, through the very things that had been made. So, so that we should see creation as, as, as a one canvas upon which God is projecting his own truth to mankind. Now it's never enough to save. It's never enough for people to, to put one and one and to one, and one and two together and make four and equal the gospel and figure out how these things work. It's not that, but it is always dishonest or at least inaccurate to say that people do not know Yahweh. Pharaoh, therefore, according to Romans 1 verse 20, is without excuse. As long as you're in the created realm and you have the faculty for the most rudimentary logic, you know God and you are without excuse excuse for denying him. And so verse 21 then says in Romans 1, although people know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they become futile in their thinking. That, that is a biography of Pharaoh. He he denies God. He, he says, I don't know him. I'm not going to give thanks to him. I don't recognize him. He can't have his people. I'm the God here. I'm the king here. I will not respect him or, 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 res- or, or respect his authority. I'm the God of this area. And therefore, he became futile in his thinking. At which point we can ask another question. Of every king and ruler and pagan priest and every human being that has ever lived, When Romans 1 says that they become futile in their thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean that the atheist, the unbeliever, the pagan cannot do astronomy? They can't figure out how stars align with seasons or or they can't do mathematics or they can't figure out the the concepts and, and presuppositions of logic. Is that true? No. That's not what futility in thinking means. To understand futility in thinking, we can go to Acts chapter 17 and read uh, what Paul then says to the Areopagites, the, the, the thinkers, the philosophers of Mars Hill, the Areopagus, the philosophical uh, sort of ma- uh, uh, marketplace of the day. So you can go there if you wish. I'll be reading it regardless. Acts chapter 17. And, and what I want you to picture is, is, is realize the, the comparison between Paul and Moses here. Paul has been, has been called up to go and front up in front of all of the thought leaders, in front of the philosophical giants of the day, and he's there to rebuke them and say, your gods are false, Yahweh is real, he's true, he's here, and he speaks to you. And that is exactly what Moses is doing in his own Areopagus thousands of years before, to, to Pharaoh and to all of his priests and his, his magicians. He's fronting up before them in his own Areopagus to say, Yahweh exists, he is real, he makes demands, and he is speaking right now. And so the same things that Paul says to his hearers, we can take back and, and kind of, with some poetic license, put in the mouth of Moses. As if he was speaking straight to Pharaoh. In verse 24... Of Acts chapter 17, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. This is again the most rudimentary logical thing that you can assume. That, that if a God was to was to make a world, it could not it could not exist or be bigger than him. He cannot make a world in which he does not entirely metaphysically fill. It cannot exist outside of him. It is him that gives presence to all things. And so what he's saying here is, if God made the world, he can't fit in the world. If God made the world, then to come up to a little building of bricks and gold and silver and say that's where he lives, that's his confinement, that's the restrictions of his being and his presence is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Paul says, if God made everything, if he is Lord of heaven and earth, then he doesn't fit in your little building. So temple worship in that way is wrong. Pharaoh. Can you imagine Moses saying that to Pharaoh? No, you do know Yahweh. You you know enough to know that the God of all of this doesn't fit in your little triangle pointy things. And he goes on in verse 25. Paul says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives himself to all things, to mankind, life and breath and everything. Right, So, So if God himself is the ground of all being, if we all exist hanging off his own existence, we only exist because he's giving us existence, then it is idiotic to think that he then in turn depends upon us for his own existence. If he's relying on us, then he couldn't exist until we came about to give him his sacrifices, to to feed him his food, to to give him the drinks, to to make the right sort of a, a human death in order to appease and give him power. None of that makes sense. If you've got a dependent God upon your sacrifices who is served by human hands as though he needed you, then that thing is not the God who created anything going on. Verse 27 and 28 in chapter 17 of Acts, Paul says, He is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So so that this God now, he's also saying, is not so separate that he is then unknowable and out in the dark. You see what he said? We are all conceptually like a fetus, like a little baby inside the mother's womb. It is in God's being that we live and move and have our being. Isn't it silly for a fetus or a baby to sort of look around and say, not sure I believe in the mother? He says, that's what you're saying to these philosophers. And, and we can imagine Moses saying this to Pharaoh. No, no, you do know. You're, you're, you're guilty for thinking that you have existence out of or, or, the, or that you can't know this Yahweh. Oh, who's this Yahweh? Could never figure it out. I don't know him. I shouldn't be held accountable. Excuse me. Excuse me, Pharaoh, if you can add one and one, if you, can, if you have the most rudimentary principles of logic, you know, you know that this God is beyond you and yet is making himself known by being so close to us. You cannot say, I don't know him. Or going further, in verse 29 in Acts chapter 17, Paul says, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Idolatry in every single form is ludicrous. He's saying that if he formed us, why is he now dependent upon our imagination to form a picture of him? Okay, it would make at least as much sense to say, he made us, now we're moving, we speak, we think, we breathe, we, we eat, and yet the God who made us, is still and quiet and, and silent and not hearing and made of stone, the same stuff we just made the outhouse out of. That's what God is made of. He's saying if if he's made us, then how in our making him is he so far denigrated? All idolatry is, is in fact ludicrous. It, it makes no sense that that God is truly and rightly embodied by the things that you are making called idols. Also, we can go even further if you enjoy a little bit of philosophical argumentation this morning and say that since we've posited an eternal being beyond all things, giving being to everything else that is not confined in a temple, that is not worshipped through, through, through sacrifices, then we can also conclude that there is only one God because for there to be multiple eternal beings you would actually have beings that are relying on less infinite on finite constraints and concepts and ideas this is what we call God's simplicity He's not made up of a whole bunch of different gods put together. We can't actually conceptually imagine multiple eternal beings because that would be uh, to, 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 to descend into categories that only make sense in time, in creation. There can only be one first mover. There can only be one first cause. There can only be one, in, one eternal primary being. So polytheism is now out the window as well. All of these things are showing the fact that polytheistic idolatry demonstrates a level of intellectual ineptitude that borders on the imbecilic. That's what Paul says to the philosophers. That's what Moses, and if we can picture ourselves there with Moses that day looking at Pharaoh, that's what you're supposed to think when he says, I don't know Yahweh. Because by God's general revelation through the world... What God has made known is this. God is only one. The God that is, is eternal. He is the only creator and has incomprehensible power and wisdom. He cannot be confined to the location of a temple. He is not dependent on the service of humans or their sacrifices. He cannot be accurately represented in the form of a statue and that God will judge evil and sin. Do you see now why Pharaoh has a bit of a motivation to say, I don't know Yahweh. Because if he was honest to what God was compelling him intellectually, if he was honest with the conscience within him that bears witness against him, then he would have to undermine and destroy the whole of Egypt's uh, religion and philosophy. The things that are so clear, Paul is saying, through the created world, condemn every. Form of idolatry and revelation that is not based upon God's own special revelation through his prophets. And it goes further. Pharaoh was not just condemned and guilty for his practical atheism regarding Yahweh because he did not think as God gave him a mind to think but also his own heart and conscience was testifying to him that he was evil. He knew. He absolutely knew that that the God who created us is a just God who will punish evil. Do you know how he knew that and how every person in the world today knows that? It's because when somebody takes your wallet, you want justice. When somebody abuses your family, you want them to be punished. We have an internal, undeniable, objective, universal understanding and commitment to justice we don't always perfectly carry it out but it's in there we know it that's simply the test somebody tells you I don't believe in objective morality you clock them one you take their wallet you steal their car and you remind them of their own philosophical commitments not evil not evil just convenient but more than that which is what Romans 2 tells us every time we make a judgment on somebody Every time we look in history and say, that was evil, that man did evil, those people did the wrong thing, every time we cast a judgment, we are proving to ourselves and to God, we know that justice must be done. But it goes even further. The simple, the simple golden rule here, Pharaoh knows that he's in sin for enslaving and subjugating and abusing the Jews. You know how we know that? Because he hasn't volunteered to be a slave. He knew that what he was doing was wrong because he knew that he wouldn't want that done to him. That's that's the golden rule of of morality. He, he, He therefore is standing here and as he dares to use the lips that Yahweh had given him, use the mind that God had given him, stand under the stars and in the marvelous land that he sat in, in the land of Egypt, he dared to utter the phrase, I don't know this Yahweh. And there he stood guilty. Guilty because in his ignorance, as with so many of us today, my friends, ignorance is in fact guilty. Although ignorance is some, ignorance of God is sometimes intellectual, unbelief in God is, is in part intellectual. It is also mostly moral. It is mostly spiritual. It is mostly that we are not inclined. We don't want to believe in the God that exists. He, in all honesty, should have said in that moment, I'm aware that our whole Egyptian way of worshipping and ruling and living is ludicrous and it's unrighteous and it's useless. Please, tell me about this God that you says is who he is. That's what he should have said. But he did no such thing. As we take a step one, 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 one step further into the mind of Pharaoh, I want to ask you, what do you think stopped him? Standing there that day before the prophet of God and Aaron, why did he not simply take a step off of his intellectual pride and ask the question, tell me more about this Yahweh? I'm I'm open at any point to dismantle our whole system if we could just believe in the truth. I'm I'm an earnest seeker, you see. What stopped him? And it's the very same thing that stops any person from believing in the true God of Scripture today. There was a desire for wealth. Which for Pharaoh required the slaves. They, they his economy. He desired wealth, and so he wasn't keen on the on the on on, on, uh, on counting the cost and receiving Yahweh. He had pride, and therefore the inability to publicly acknowledge that he was so wrong about everything. He had a grasp for power, which he would not relinquish. He had a taste of his own authority, which was threatened in God speaking to him. Do do you see how the dynamics play out? Moses comes and says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. And in response, Pharaoh stands up and says, no, no, no. Thus says Pharaoh. There's one boss in this place. I'm not leaving room on the throne for another God or another king. He had no interest in that. He had a grasp for power, did not want to give it up. He had a fear of man. I mean, what would the Egyptian royalty do to him if he gave away their whole economy and then threw out their entire ancient religion? That was thinking in his mind. The very same way that people in Jesus' day, Jesus looks around at them and says, you can't glorify God. You're seeking other people's glory. You cannot come to the truth when the light will expose you. You care what other people think far too much. He had racial motivation. Because he despised the Jews and the God of the Jews and was not inclined to receive him. And then on top of all of this, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So he is also bound here by satanic, demonic power. Unbelief, again, is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral moral problem. Wherever there is ignorance, and I'm talking to you, if you claim to not know the true God, oh, I've heard about him, you know, there's there's information out there, wherever there is an unbelief in him, and, and even if there is some ignorance about him, let's be honest, that is willing ignorance. You don't want to know more, lest it lead you somewhere you don't want to go. You don't really want to find out the truth, lest it leave you guilty in the way that you live. Ignorance is often so willing, so intentional, so purposeful. Moses had known God through this definite saving revelation. Paul had known God through the saving revelation of Jesus. Moses went before Pharaoh. Paul went before the Areopagus. I'm standing here before you now, and if you're an unbeliever, the word to you is to come and to know the one true God, not as he's made himself known in a fiery bush. Not as he's made himself known, even as the rescuer from slavery in Egypt, but as he has made himself known more clearly, more purely, more truly, more honestly, more powerfully and more graciously in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who came and lived for you and died for you and rose for you to offer to every single person eternal life. That's the Jesus on offer. But we can see here now Pharaoh's own Response. Look, at, look at verse 4 through 18. We start seeing his own, his own response, the, the commands to make, make bricks without straw. Look in verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land and our many... And you make them rest from their burdens. In other words, there's a big big gap and deficit in the economy now. You made so many people go on strike. Verse 6, that same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. So, so what we have is the Egyptian slave masters employed by Pharaoh, and then the foremen were in fact Israelites that were selected to, to rule over and to enforce the commandments of the Egyptian slave masters. It was a lot more efficient, and yet it starts setting Hebrew against Hebrew. He has the, the slave masters, and then under them the pharaohs. The taskmasters, rather, the taskmasters and the foremen. He says, verse 7, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, let them Go and gather straw for themselves. In the in the Egyptian uh, uh, geography, the, the mud that you would gather from around the Nile was far too wet. It was not like one that would, would form a solid clay left out in the sun, rather it was so so mushy, so, so soft in its uh, in its makeup that what you needed was the straw, the, the leftover wheat, after they harvest the top of the grain, then the rest of it was chopped off. And and, and meat-along straw was then used in the makeup of the mud to hold it together and give it some integrity. Now, without that. You have you have sloppy bricks. You, you just can't make them. It's, it's impossible in Egypt. And so rather than being supplied with all the means that they need to make the bricks, Pharaoh says, go get your own straw. Gather around. Go, go to all of the leftover farmlands and, and find, he says later, gather stubble. The stubble is, is after the straw has been chopped off and used by other people. Then you can come along and get maybe a couple of inches off the very bottom of the stalk. And, and it's actually quite difficult to, to pick up and pluck up. And so all they've got is piles of rubble rather than large uh, 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 gather, gathered heaps of straw. It's, it's impossible. That's what he's commanding them to go and do. Verse 8, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavy work be laid on the men that they may labor and pay no regard to lying words. This is, this is an outright abuse of the people. This is secondhand slaughter by the simple command of Pharaoh. Many would die. Many Jews would die because of this harsh labor in the sun. But this is, this is another taste of his total authority which he did not want to relinquish. What we're being seen here is the almost divine command that he can say whatever he wants and it happens. And it's as if Pharaoh is flexing his authoritative muscles right in front of Moses and Aaron, as if to say, the God you're telling me about, I reject. Look at my power. I will enslave his firstborn sons with a word yet again to afflict them into the dust. The Egyptian religion believed that Pharaoh was in fact the divine presence of the gods on earth. He embodied the, the power of the gods and he was, a, he was a descendant of the gods so that they could say, in, in really a true sense, the gods are embodied in the king on earth. Isn't it interesting that, that when people turn to idolatry, when they turn from the true God and the true Christ, they, all, they not only make up for themselves idols, not only does the human heart make up false gods, they also make up for themselves false incarnations. So that, so that not only is it that we worship a different God, but we also have as a mediator between God and us a false Christ, a false incarnation. And, and most of the time throughout history, even alive and well today, that incarnation happens in the state In the government whether it's whether it's babylon persia greece rome north korea today other ways that in the west it creeps into this all authoritative state or all the way back to to egypt in pharaoh there is this there is this this natural bent in the human heart to worship a false god and require and look to a false incarnation and we see that here in his outright authority And so from here on, as we go through and we read the book of Exodus, I do not want you to see it as a story of God trying to convince Pharaoh that ship has sailed. God has not chosen Pharaoh for such a mercy. He has rather chosen Pharaoh to be his canvas upon which he shows his own power and his own glory. However, this is not even ultimately a showdown between Israel and Egypt. It's not even ultimately a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh or between God and Pharaoh. It is ultimately a showdown between Yahweh and the false gods of Egypt that are empowered by the demonic realm. That's what the showdown starts to become. That's why it heats up so much in the plagues and the coming chapters. But look at what happens. Look at the, the language that is used in verse 10 through 18. Note the severity. The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will give you no straw. Go and get the straw yourselves, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Verse 13, the taskmasters were urgent. Saying, complete your work your daily task each day as there was as you did when there was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel cried to uh, and uh, uh, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, "Why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks?" So, so they know they can't do it. They take them and they beat them for not being able to do it. Anyway, look at verse 16. They say back to them, no, uh, they go back into the presence of Pharaoh, these foremen. No straw is given, and yet they say to us, Make bricks, behold, your servants are beaten, and the fault is on your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. What we have here is Pharaoh as a brutal, savage, vicious ruler. The Jews were laboring under the hottest of suns, now without straw. And as they didn't meet the quota, they were beaten for failing. It was only increasing with the intensity of the urgency coming from the taskmasters. Without any mercy, without any grace, they were just cogs in the machine to Pharaoh and he would whip them and destroy them and kill them and throw them out, entirely replaceable as he willed. And yet, the Bible tells us that there is a much harsher task master than pharaoh there is a much worse dictator in human history than pharaoh ever was and it it wasn't a a king that you'll read about in history's pages It, it wasn't a ruler of a nation that you can go and look up on wikipedia later the master that is harsher than pharaoh could ever imagine to be was in fact master over pharaoh himself And it it wasn't a master that was only over Pharaoh or the Egyptians or or the enslaved Jews. It is in fact a master that rules over every single soul that is outside of Jesus Christ. And that is the slave master, the task master that we call sin. And this sin that that rules over us, the Bible tells us, is as harsh and harsher than every single one of the Egyptians here on this hot day in Egypt. It, It beats you. And it, and it enslaves you to do the wills of your heart and, and to do the things that you want to do and, and to do what it tells you and it never gives you a reward. And sin comes to you and, and tempts you a little bit more. Like there's this, there's this slice of joy that you can have if you just indulge. Just don't tell them, keep that secret, Uh, perpetuate the lie, go and indulge in that sexual sin. Take a little bit more for yourself, slice off some glory for you, it'll be great. And just as we're about to indulge in the forbidden fruit of sin and have an inkling of joy in it, he whips us upon our back, lashes us to the ground and tears our back open in bloody mess. This is what sin does. Never, never has there been a joy-filled, obedient servant of sin. We, we go about according to what we what we want and what we think we desire and what we think is good for us, but all the while, the chains and the shackles upon our soul are held fast by sin. Pharaoh's treatment of Israel is merely a picture of this relationship that we all have with sin. Every single one of us is corrupt in this way, and even, even the sin that you labor under, that you suffer under, that you're afflicted under, those who are outside of Jesus, it it even offers a false sense of salvation. Implicit in what Pharaoh has said is, you're idle, so you can't worship. I'm going to work you harder. Now, now maybe they were tempted to think, if we impress him, if we work hard enough, if we do and we do and we work and we work, then he'll show, he'll see that we're not idle and we're allowed, we're, we're going to be given freedom because we've worked hard enough and, and then he'll let us go. And so sin also holds out this corrupted little carrot in front of every single person that's ever enslaved. Just a, just a few more inklings of sin. Just a few more years. Give Jesus your latter years. Just, just a few more steps. I, I promise you won't become like, the, uh, like what you fear. It'll, it'll be happy. The, the Lord is just keeping you away from the best. Your parents just don't want you to taste the good stuff. Just keep on indulging. And so sin holds out. These false views of salvation, or, or even tempts you to think religiously, legalistically, you know, if you do enough, if you better yourself up, if you improve yourself, then God will have you. But that is not what, that, that is not the, the nature of sin as a taskmaster. Sin only seeks to enslave and to destroy and to kill your soul and take it down to the depths of hell. Can you imagine being a Jew in that Egyptian summer, laboring under the whips? the commands of the taskmasters and then hearing the voice of Pharaoh. Maybe he's climbed up on top of one of those pyramids and he just projects as loud as he can. Peace! Rest! Lay down your arms! Stop building! I have done everything that I commanded you to do. Just rest! Sit down! Take a drink! Take a sip! Rest! Can you imagine the relief that would come? As a slave, and yet he never would. It's not in the nature of an enslaver to procure salvation and freedom, but it is in the nature of the God revealing himself through Moses here today to promise and bless salvation. The Son, Jesus says, the Son sets people free, and if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Do you know what Jesus comes? face to face with you in the word of God this morning. Do you know what he says to you if you're not in Jesus Christ? He doesn't say, work, work, do, do, do more and procure for me a righteousness that I can judge you by. No, no, no. Jesus comes, the God of all creation that can never be confined to a temple, that can never be worshipped with a sacrifice, that can never be accessed by our own good works. He comes to you and he demands you today, rest. Stop your working. Don't try and do more. I've done it all. Simply lay down, rest and sleep and, 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 and fold yourself into the promise that by my life, by my death, by my resurrection, I have opened the way into the eternal abode of heaven. That's the good news that Jesus comes to tell every single weary, burdened, enslaved soul this morning. If you have not believed in Jesus, this is what you're missing out on. This is the the enslavement that, that you are laboring under, and this is the gospel that Jesus seeks to bring you into. Believe, rest, come to Jesus. He has done it all. And for those who know him, how great our praise must be to such a Savior who comes to us in this way. Let's pray. Father God, we consider the ways in which you spoke through your prophets of old, Moses and Aaron, And Abraham and Isaiah and all those those marvelous visions. And and as we're going to see in coming weeks, the the miracles and the displays of your power, we we consider those things. And as we, we read on and as we continue to think, we realize that there is no greater revelation of who you are, no greater display of your power and your nature, your divine nature and your eternal power. There's no greater display of those than in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, than in his living and is dying for us, and in his rising there is put on display the utmost justice, because you you fulfilled the law for us. There is displayed the utmost power, because you overcome everything that enslaves us. There is there the display of utmost love that you have condescended so far as to take on our nature in order to bring us to eternal life. Father God, naturally to us, just like to Pharaoh, naturally when we hear the gospel, it's folly, It's foolishness, it's idiocy, it's weakness, a dead God, a a weakened God. Jesus on the cross is an old myth and a silly one at that, but God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring souls to life so that they can see with new eyes. They can taste with, with a new tongue and realize this is in fact the wisdom, the power, the grace, the love of the one true God. In the gospel, there is the full revelation of our one true creator coming to become our redeemer. Father God, I pray that you would give new faith to hearts this morning. I pray that those of us who know you would delight afresh with the the glory that there is and the promises of the gospel. And would you make it go out beyond us? Would you make it go to our loved ones and to our friends the good news of salvation that the son sets sinners free and we remain free indeed by his grace. We pray all these things in His name and for His glory. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.